Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's January 24th, 2020. Today marks the fourth day of arguments in the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump and the third and final day of House managers' formal presentation to senators laying out their case for removing the president from office. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. In the first three episodes of this podcast, we condense each day of the Senate impeachment trial proceedings down to a digestible length. No commentary, no analysis, just the trial itself in a condensed form. For the last two days, House managers laid out to senators the facts in support of conviction and removal of the president and offered constitutional, historical, and legal context for the impeachment power. Friday was their last day to make their case. And on Saturday, the president's legal team will take the lectern and offer their arguments in defense of the president. This is the impeachment, episode four, House managers' third day of presentations. The House managers started the day by continuing the presentation of their case against President Trump for the first article of impeachment, abuse of power. House manager Jason Crow. Now, since we won't have an opportunity to respond to the president's presentation, I'm going to take a minute to respond to some of the arguments that I expect them to make. You will notice, I'm sure, that they will ignore significant portions of the evidence while trying to cherry pick individual statements here and there to manufacture defenses. But don't be fooled. One defense you may hear is that the aid was held up to allow for a policy review. This is what the administration told the GAO at one point. But the evidence shows the opposite. The evidence shows that the administration didn't conduct a review at any time after the president ordered the hold. Laura Cooper was not aware of any review of the funding conducted by DOD in July, August, or September. And similarly, George Kent testified that the State Department did not conduct and was never asked to conduct a review of funding administered by the State Department. In fact, on May 23rd, the anti-corruption review was complete and DOD certified to Congress that Ukraine had complied with all of the conditions and that the remaining half of the aid should be released. This was confirmed by the June 18th press release announcing the release or announcing the, the, the funding. And do you remember the fictitious, fictitious quote-unquote, interagency review process? Well, that was made up, too. So no review was necessary because it had already been done. Next, the President's counsel keeps saying this was about corruption in Ukraine. President Trump was not concerned with fighting corruption. It's difficult to even say that with a straight face. The president never mentioned corruption on either call with President Zelensky. But let's go through the evidence. As we just discussed, DOD had already completed a review and concluded that Ukraine had, quote, made sufficient progress 
in meeting defense reform and anti-corruption goals consistent with the National Defense Authorization Act in order to receive the funds. And in fact, Mark Sandy, who was not at that meeting, but who was initially responsible for approving the hold, said he had never heard corruption as a reason for the hold in all of the discussions he had about it. Similar to the anti-corruption argument, there is simply no evidence to support the president's after-the-fact argument that he was concerned about burden-sharing. Now, that's other countries also contributing to Ukraine. I imagine the president may cite the emails in June about what other countries provided to Ukraine, the reference to other countries' contributions in the July 25th call, and testimony from Sandy about a request for information about what other European countries give to Ukraine. But there is simply no evidence that ties the concern to his decision to hold the funding. First, let's actually look at the contributions of European countries to Ukraine. There's a slide in front of you. It shows that other European countries have significantly contributed to Ukraine since 2014. And the European Union in total has given far more than the U.S., the EU is the single largest donor to Ukraine, having provided over $16 billion in grants and loans. The President's assertion that other countries did not support Ukraine is meritless. And there are other reasons, too. If the President's concern were genuinely about burden-sharing, he never made any public statements about it, never ordered a review of burden-sharing, and never ordered his officials to push Europe to increase their contributions. And then he released the aid without any changes in Europe's contributions. Finally, you may hear the President's counsel say that Ukraine didn't know about the hold until August 28th, long after the hold was implemented. So therefore, they could not have felt pressure. But this makes no sense. First, they found out about it long before August 28th. Multiple witnesses testified that the Ukrainians showed, quote, impressive diplomatic trade craft, and learning quickly about the hold. And of course, they would know. The DOD release was announced in June, and U.S. agencies knew about it in July. So it should be no surprise that the first inquiries about the aid were on July 25th, the same day as the call. You see, it doesn't matter if extortion lasts two weeks or two months. It's still extortion, and Ukraine certainly felt the pressure. House Manager Hakeem Jeffries then walked through what he argued were the Trump administration's efforts to conceal the president's involvement with the campaign to pressure Ukraine by announcing investigations into the Bidens and the 2016 election. Under federal law, the acting director of national intelligence was required to share the whistleblower complaint with Congress, period, full stop. If that had occurred, the president's scheme to withhold security assistance and a White House meeting being sought by the new Ukrainian leader to pressure Ukraine for his own personal political gain would have been exposed. To prevent that from happening, the Office of Legal Counsel issued a secret opinion, concluding that, contrary to the plain language of the statute, the acting director of national intelligence was not required to turn over the complaint. The cover-up was in full swing. The Office of Legal Counsel opined that the whistleblower complaint did not qualify as an urgent concern and therefore did not have to be turned over. What can be more urgent than a sitting president 
trying to cheat in an American election by soliciting foreign interference. What can be more urgent than that? That's a constitutional crime in progress. But they concluded it wasn't an urgent matter. Acting Director of National Intelligence McGuire testified that the Office of Legal Counsel opinion did not actually prevent him from turning over the complaint to Congress. Instead, based upon his testimony, it is clear that he withheld it on the basis that the complaint might deal with information that he believed could be covered by executive privilege. But President Trump never actually invoked executive privilege. He never actually invoked executive privilege. Nor did he inform Congress that he was doing so with respect to this complaint. Instead, the White House secretly instructed the acting director of national intelligence to withhold the complaint based on the mere possibility that executive privilege could be invoked. By doing so, the White House was able to keep the explosive complaint from Congress and the American public without ever having to disclose the reason why it was withholding this information. But truth crushed to the ground will rise again. There's a toxic mess at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and I humbly suggest that it's our collective job on behalf of the American people to try to clean it up. President Trump tried to cheat. He got caught. And then he worked hard to cover it up. House Manager Jason Crow then discussed what U.S. officials did in the wake of the freeze on the security assistance and the efforts to express concerns about the hold to the White House. Now, the president's counsel will likely say that his lifting of the hold shows his good faith. They will say that because Ukraine ultimately received the aid without President Zelensky having to announce the sham investigations, that there was no abuse of power. As a legal matter, the fact that the president's corrupt scheme was not fully successful makes no difference. Trump's abuse occurred at the moment he used the power of the presidency to assist his re-election campaign, undermining our free and fair elections and our national security. But importantly, President Trump almost did get away with it. As discussed earlier, President Zelensky agreed during his, his September phone call with Ambassador Sondland to do a CNN interview during which he denounced the investigations. On September 12th, Ambassador Taylor personally informed President Zelensky and the Ukrainian foreign minister that President Trump's hold on military assistance had been lifted. And on September 13th, Ambassador Taylor and David Holmes met with President Zelensky and his advisors and urged them not to go forward with the CNN interview. It was not until September 18th and 19th, around the time that President Zelensky spoke with Vice President Pence, that the Ukrainians finally canceled the CNN interview. The President has also repeatedly pointed to President Zelensky's public statements that he did not feel pressured by Trump. Not only unsurprising, it's also irrelevant. The question is whether President Trump used the power of the presidency to coerce President Zelensky into helping him win a political campaign. But we know that President Zelensky was pressured. He kept delaying and delaying because he did not want to be a pawn in U.S. domestic politics. In fact, President Zelensky remains under pressure to this day. As Holmes testified, there are still things the Ukrainians want and need from the United States, including a meeting with the president in the Oval Office, which has still not been scheduled. 
And yes, Ukraine remains at war and needs U.S. military aid, including aid that is still delayed from last year. For these reasons, Mr. Holmes explained, quote, I, th I think the Ukrainians are being very careful. They still need us now going forward. In fact, right now, President Zelensky is trying to arrange a summit meeting with President Putin in the coming weeks, his first face-to-face -face meeting with him to try to advance the peace process. House Manager Adam Schiff ended the House's presentation on Article 1 by discussing how President Trump's alleged conduct damaged the U.S. national security and undermined free and fair elections. Ukraine is a burgeoning democracy entangled in a hot war with Russia. By withholding military aid, President Trump not only denied Ukraine much-needed military equipment, but also weakened Ukraine's position in negotiations over the end of the war with Russia. Because of President, Trump, President Trump's corrupt actions, Vladimir Putin was emboldened at a pivotal moment ahead of those sensitive negotiations to attempt to end the war. And emboldened Russia is a threat to the United States and global security around the world. The President's willingness to put himself over a country undercut our European allies' confidence in America's commitment to deterring Russian aggression. And it signaled to adversaries and friends alike that the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, our Commander-in-Chief, could be influenced by manipulating his perception of what was best for his personal interests. That is the core conduct of an impeachable offense. The President's abuse of power also affected our election integrity. The framers of our Constitution were particularly fearful that a President might misuse or abuse the power of his office to undermine the free and fair elections at the heart of our democracy. Sadly, that moment has arrived. President Trump's repeated solicitation of a Ukrainian investigation was a clear effort to leverage foreign interference to bolster his prospects in the 2020 election. In other words, to cheat in his election. In our democracy, power flows from the will of the people as manifest in free and fair elections. One person, one vote is fundamental in our democracy. President Trump's invitation of foreign interference in the 2020 election for the purposes of helping him win an election undercut the Constitution's commitment to popular sovereignty. Americans are now left to wonder if their vote matters or if they're simply pawns in a system being manipulated by shadowy foreign forces working on behalf of corrupt interests of a lawless president. Over the long term, this weakens our democratic system's capacity for self-governance by encouraging apathy and non-participation. Cynicism makes it easier for enemies to influence our politics and undermine the national good. Indeed, this is precisely what Vladimir Putin intended when he meddled in the 2016 election, for us to become more cynical, for us to lose faith in the notion that the American system of government is superior to the corrupt autocratic model of government that he has erected in Russia and sought to export to places like Ukraine. These are not the free and fair elections Americans expect or demand if foreign powers are interfering. 
How can we know that our elections are free from foreign interference, whether by disinformation or hacking or fake investigations? We must not become numb to foreign interference in our elections. Our elections are sacred. If we do not act to put an end to the solicitation of foreign interference in our election by the President of the United States, the effect will be corrosive to our elections and our values. Future presidents may believe that they, too, can use the substantial power conferred on them by the Constitution in order to undermine our system of free and fair elections, that they, too, can cheat to obtain power or keep it. That way lies disaster for the great American experiment in self-governance. As you have seen, there is powerful evidence that President Trump will continue to betray the national interest to a foreign power and further undermine both our security and democracy. This creates an urgent need to remove him from office before the next election. To explain the nature of that continuing threat, let me describe Russia's ongoing efforts to harm our elections, the President's corrupt refusal to condemn or defend against those attacks, his statements confirming that he welcomes foreign interference in our elections, so long as this is meant to help him and his conduct proving that he will persist in seeking to corrupt elections at the expense of our security and at the expense of those elections. Let's start with Russia's ongoing attacks on our democracy. At the heart of the President's Ukraine scheme is his decision to subscribe to that dangerous conspiracy theory that Ukraine, not Russia, was responsible for interfering in 2016. President Trump and his men pressured Ukraine into investigating this bogus piece of Russian propaganda, and in doing so, they aided Putin's concert, concerted plot to undermine our security and democracy. Special Counsel Mueller warned that Putin's plot was ongoing. Is this, um, in your investigation, did you think that this was a single attempt by the Russians to get involved in our election, or did you find evidence to suggest they'll try to do this again? Oh, it wasn't a single attempt. Uh, they're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. Not a single attempt. They're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it in the next campaign. That was Special Counsel Mueller's stark warning. And we now know that Director Mueller was right. Just the other week, we saw public reporting that Russian hackers may be using phishing emails to attack the Ukrainian gas company Burisma, presumably in search of dirt on Joe Biden. Those are the same tactics deployed by the same adversary, Russia, that Special Counsel warned about in the last election. It may be Russia once again attempting to sway our election for one candidate, this time through Ukraine. Indeed, President Trump to this very day refuses to accept the unanimous assessment of intelligence community and law enforcement professionals that Russia interfered in the 2016 campaign and poses a threat to the 2020 presidential election. Instead, he views it from his own personal lens, whether it is an attack on the legitimacy of his 2016 electoral victory. Special Counsel Mueller's testimony on July 24 2019, the day before the President's call with President Zelensky, contradicted President Trump's claim that his was, quote, a clean campaign. 
Mueller found that individuals associated with the 2016 campaign of the president welcomed Russia's offers of assistance and adjusted their political strategy so that then-candidate Donald Trump might benefit from Russia's assistance. When they were subsequently asked by U.S. law enforcement about their activities, President Trump's advisors repeatedly lied. In Helsinki in July of 2018, however, President Trump refused to acknowledge the Russian threat to our elections. When a reporter explicitly asked whether he believed Putin or the U.S. intelligence agencies on the issue of foreign interference in the 2016 election, President Trump said, quote, I don't see any reason why it would be Russia, and talked about the DNC server. So let me just say that we have two thoughts. You have groups that are wondering why the FBI never took the server. Why haven't they taken the server? Why was the FBI told to leave the office of the Democratic National Committee? I've been wondering that. I've been asking that for months and months, and I've been tweeting it out and calling it out on social media. Where is the server? I want to know where is the server and what is the server saying? With that being said, all I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. I mean, there he is, the president of Russia, standing next to the president of the United States and hearing his own Kremlin propaganda talking points coming from the President of the United States. Now, if that's not a propaganda coup, I don't know what is. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's the most extraordinary thing. The President of the United States standing next to the President of Russia, our adversary, saying he doesn't believe his own intelligence agencies. He doesn't believe them. He's promoting this kooky, crazy server theory cooked up by the Kremlin, right next to the guy that cooked it up. It's a breathtaking success of Russian intelligence. I mean, this is just the most incredible propaganda coup. Because as, as I said yesterday, it's not just that the President of the United States standing next to Vladimir Putin is is reading Kremlin talking points. He won't read his own national security staff talking points, but he will read the Kremlin ones. But it's not just that he adopts the Kremlin talking points. Now, you can see President Trump did not blame Vladimir Putin and the Russian intelligence agencies who interfered in our election for the questions surrounding his victory. He did not blame the people who worked for his campaign and were subsequently convicted of lying to our law enforcement agencies. No, he blamed the investigators. Special Counsel Mueller, the man charged with getting to the bottom of Russia's interference in 2016. And he chose to believe Vladimir Putin, a former Russian intelligence officer, rather than his own intelligence agencies. We can see a pattern here. President Trump solicited interference from Russia as a candidate in 2016, and then his campaign welcomed Russian interference in the election. In Helsinki, President Trump chose to believe Putin over his own agencies. Our founders understood that a president 
like Donald Trump might one day grasp the reins of power. An unremorseful, overreaching executive, faithful to himself only, and willing to sacrifice our democracy and national security for his own personal advantage. His pattern of conduct repeatedly soliciting foreign interference in our elections for his own benefit confirms that he will stop at nothing to retain his power. He willfully chose to place his own personal interests above the country's and the integrity of our elections. There is every reason to believe that will continue. He has stonewalled Congress and ordered executive branch agencies, organizations that work for the American people, not for the president, to join in his obstruction. He deployed Mr. Giuliani to Ukraine to continue advancing a scheme that serves no other purpose than advancing his 2020 re-election prospects. He attacked witnesses, public servants, patriots, who stayed true to their oath and leveled with the American people about the grave national injury that resulted from the president's misconduct. And he continued to urge foreign nations to investigate American citizens that he views as a threat. The threat that he will continue to abuse his power and cause grave harm to the nation over the course of the next year until a new president is sworn in or until he would be reelected is not hypothetical. Merely exposing the president's scheme has not stopped him from continuing this destructive pattern of behavior that has brought us to this somber moment. He is who he is. That will not change and nor will the danger associated with him. Every piece of evidence supports that terrible conclusion that the President of the United States will abuse his power again, that he will continue to solicit foreign interference to help corruptly secure his reelection. He has shown neither remorse nor acknowledgement of wrongdoing if you can believe that July 25th was a perfect call, that asking for investigations of your political opponents and using the power of your office to make it so is perfectly fine, then there is nothing that would stop you from doing it again. President Trump has abused the power of his office and must be removed from that office. House Manager Val Dennings began to lay out the House's case for the second article of impeachment, arguing that President Trump abused his powers in an unprecedented way to obstruct Congress's inquiry. Mr. Chief Justice and Senators, first of all, I, I want to join my colleagues in just thanking you for your patience and your indulgence. Um, I, what I can tell you today is that we are closer today than we were on yesterday because I'm prepared to present Article 2, Obstruction of Congress. The second article of impeachment charges the President with misusing the powers of his high office to obstruct the House impeachment inquiry. We are here today in response to a blanket order issued by President Trump directing the entire executive branch to withhold all documents and testimony from that inquiry. 
President Trump's obstruction of the impeachment inquiry was categorical, indiscriminate, and historically unprecedented. And its purpose was clear, to impede Congress's ability to carry out its duties under the Constitution, to hold the President accountable for high crimes and misdemeanors. As part of his effort to cover up evidence of his scheme to solicit foreign interference in the upcoming election, President Trump did something no president has ever dared to do in the history of our republic. President Trump directed the entire executive branch not to cooperate with the House's impeachment inquiry. President Trump blocked every person who works in the White House and every person who works in every department, agency, and office of the executive branch from providing information to the House as part of the impeachment inquiry. This was not about specific, narrowly defined security or privacy issues nor was it based on potential privileges available to the executive branch. Indeed, President Trump has not once asserted executive privilege during this process. This was a declaration of total defiance of the House's authority to investigate credible allegations of the President's misconduct and a wholesale rejection of Congress's ability to hold the president accountable. The president's order, executed by his top aides, substantially interfered with the House's constitutionally authorized power to conduct an impeachment inquiry. At President Trump's direction, the White House itself released refused to produce a single document or record in response to a House subpoena that remains in full force and effect, and it continues to withhold, withhold those documents from Congress and from the American people. But it is not just the White House. Following President Trump's order, the Office of the Vice President, the Office of Management and Budget, the Department of State, the Department of Energy, and the Department of Defense all continued to, re to refuse to produce a single document or record in response to 71 specific requests, including five subpoenas. Additionally, following President Trump's order, 12 current or former administration officials continued to refuse to testify as part of the House's impeachment inquiry. Not only current administration officials, but former administration officials as well. Nine of those witnesses, including senior officials with direct firsthand knowledge of the president's actions, continue to defy subpoenas for testimony because of the president's order. 
Revelations of evidence harmful to the president have only continued since the House compiled its investigative reports. Recent court ordered releases under the Freedom of Information Act, as well as disclosures to the media, have further demonstrated that the White House, OMB, State Department, and other agencies are actively withholding highly relevant documents that could further implicate the president and his subordinates. Over time, these documents and this evidence will undoubtedly come to light. And I ask this body to not wait to read about it in the press or in a book. You should be hearing this evidence now. Hearing this evidence now. Now there is one point that I would like to make very clear. President Trump's wholesale obstruction of Congress strikes at the very heart of our Constitution and our democratic system of government. The President of the United States could undertake such comprehensive obstruction only because of the exceptional powers entrusted to him by the American people. Only one person in the world has the power to issue, issue an order to the entire executive branch. That person, senators, as you know, is the president. And President Trump used that power not to faithfully execute the law, but to order agencies and employees of the executive branch to conceal evidence of his misconduct. Now, I know that no other American could seek to obstruct an investigation into his or her wrongdoing in this way. We all know that no other American could use the vast powers of our government to undertake a corrupt scheme to cheat to win an election and then use those same powers to suppress the evidence of his constitutional crime. We would not allow, no, I, I am convinced that we would not allow any member of our state or local governments to use the official powers of their office to cover up crimes and misdeeds. As this body is well aware, mayors and governors have gone to jail for doing so. Sheriffs and police chiefs are certainly not immune. If we allow President Trump to escape accountability, we will inflict lasting damage on the separation of powers among our branches of government our fundamental system of checks and balances. It would inflict irreversible damage by allowing this commander-in-chief and establishing precedents for future presidents to act corruptly or abusively and then use the vast powers of their office, the office of the presidency, 
to conceal their own misconduct from Congress and the American people. In other words, we would create a system that allows this president and any future president to really do whatever he or she wants. It is an attack on congressional oversight, not just on the House, but also on the Senate's own ability to oversee and serve as a check on this and future presidents, both Republican and Democratic. Well, the times, senators, have found us. If Congress allows President Trump's obstruction to stand, it effectively nullifies the impeachment power. Senators, we are the keepers, the protectors, the defenders of what the framers intended. And we must hold any unprincipled and undisciplined executive accountable. Senators, this is very simple. It's simple. The president abused the powers entrusted in him by the American people in a scheme to suppress evidence, escape accountability, and orchestrate a massive cover-up. And he did so in plain sight. And his obstruction remains ongoing. Following Representative Dennings, House Manager Sylvia Garcia began to outline the facts of the House's obstruction case against the president, focusing on persistent efforts from the White House to conceal documentary evidence and the president's attempts to intimidate those who chose to testify in the inquiry. The president began to attack the legitimacy of the House impeachment inquiry while standing on the tarmac of, at Andrew, Andrews Air Force Base President Trump argued that the House impeachment inquiry, quote, shouldn't be allowed. He claimed that there, and I quote again, there should be a way of stopping it, maybe legally, through the courts. Let's watch the president and what he had to say. My call was perfect. The president yesterday of Ukraine said there was no pressure put on him whatsoever, none whatsoever. And he said it loud and clear for the press. What these guys are doing, Democrats, are doing to this country is a disgrace, and it shouldn't be allowed. There should be a way of stopping it, maybe legally through the courts. There should be a way of stopping it. Soon after, President Trump took the matters into his own hands. The president used his authority and his office to wage a relentless and misleading public campaign to attack the impeachment inquiry. The attacks did not end there. President Trump turned from rhetoric to action. On October 8th, the White House sent a letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi informing her that President Trump 
which seek to completely obstruct the impeachment inquiry. They send this letter, White House stationery. I shouldn't say this, but I'm a lawyer, but very loyally, it's an H-page letter. You know, lawyers can't do one thing in one page. We got to do seven or eight. This was eight pages, and it's um, long, and no worries. I'm not going to read it all. I just want to get to the bottom line. It says, President Trump cannot permit his administration to participate in this partisan inquiry under the circumstances. He was just saying, we're not going to cooperate. And the letter is dated again, October 8th, and it's signed by uh, Pat uh, Cipollone, uh, who is here, of course, with us today as the lead counsel uh, for the president. The president did not make any claim of privilege. The president did not make any attempt to compromise. He had no valid excuse. And although we're all too familiar with President Trump's rhetoric and rants, these words in this letter on White House stationery signed by his late counsel here today have consequences. These words had consequences. They were more than just ink on a page. There were more than just eight pages of words. In the days that followed, President Trump's agencies and officials followed his order to conceal information from Congress. Over the past few days, you've heard in extensive detail from all of us about some of the specific and incriminating documents that the President has withheld from Congress. But again, Here's the bottom line. The House investigating committees sought a total of 71 specific categories of documents from six different agencies and offices. President Trump blocked every single one of these requests, all of them. The documents President Trump is withholding are highly relevant, responsive, and would further our understanding of the president's scheme. Here is just a sampling of the documents we know exist that are currently being withheld. National Security Advisor John Bolton's notes, Ambassador Taylor's first-person cable to Secretary Pompeo, emails between OMB and other agencies about the president's directive to place a hold on the Ukraine military aid and the hundreds of heavily redacted documents that the administration now turned over to third parties under FOIA court orders. Certainly the documents released pursuant to the FOIA lawsuits were not subject to any claims of privilege or confidentiality or burden. The administration released them publicly. By contrast, the president turned over nothing in response to the House impeachment investigation. No documents, zero, goose egg, nada, in response to over 70 requests, 70 requests and five subpoenas. 
no attempt to negotiate, no genuine attempt to accommodate, categorical, indiscriminate, and unprecedented stalling. Again, never in my time as a lawyer or as a judge have I seen this kind of total disrespect and defiance of a lawfully issued subpoena and all on President Trump's orders. And it could continue because this obstruction of Congress is real and it's beyond, beyond comparison. This president should be removed. House Manager Zoe Lofgren dug deeper into the president's efforts to prevent executive branch witnesses from testifying before Congress. President Trump also sent specific explicit orders. He directed key witnesses to defy subpoenas and to refuse to testify as part of the House's impeachment inquiry. As you know, the House subpoenaed acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. We wanted his testimony. As at a White House press briefing in October, and I know you've seen it before, Mr. Mulvaney confirmed what we had suspected. Mr. Mulvaney admitted that President Trump withheld the aid to pressure Ukraine into announcing an investigation into the conspiracy theory that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 elections. Here's his words. Did he also mention to me in the past that the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. Um, but that's it. And that's why we held up the money. After this really stunning admission, the House issued a subpoena to require Mr. Mulvaney to testify. But on the day of Mr. Mulvaney's scheduled deposition, the White House sent a letter to his personal attorney. It prohibited from obeying the subpoena. And the letter said, quote, the president directs Mr. Mulvaney not to appear at the committee's scheduled deposition. When he issued this order, President Trump doubled down on his previous blanket order. He did so after the House voted to approve Resolution 660, which in no uncertain terms made clear that Mr. Mulvaney was being subpoenaed to testify in an impeachment investigation. This order was the first of many. President Trump also ordered another White House official, Robert Blair, not to testify. Mr. Blair is Mr. Mulvaney's senior advisor and his closest aide. He was involved in communications about the hold on Ukraine aid. The day after his initially scheduled deposition, Mr. Blair's personal attorney sent a letter to the House. It said, quote, Mr. Blair has been directed by the White House not to appear and testify. The House also wanted testimony from John Eisenberg, the senior attorney on President Trump's National Security Council. As you've heard over the past few days, key witnesses, including Dr. Hill, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, said they were concerned by President Trump's efforts to pressure Ukraine. They were told to report these concerns to Mr. Eisenberg. On the day before his scheduled deposition, the White House sent a letter to Mr. Eisenberg's personal attorney. It said, quote, the president directs Mr. Eisenberg not to appear 
at the committee's deposition. Now that language is starting to sound familiar. Mr. Eisenberg's personal attorney then sent a letter to the House. The letter said this, under these circumstances, Mr. Eisenberg has no other option that is consistent with his legal and ethical obligations except to follow the direction of his client and employer, the President of the United States. Accordingly, Mr. Eisenberg will not be appearing for a deposition at this time. Now that language I think is important, and it's telling. It shows that President Trump's order left Mr. Eisenberg with, quote, no other option that is consistent with his legal and ethical obligations. By directing him to defy a lawful subpoena, President Trump created a legal and ethical problem for Mr. Eisenberg. I'm sure you know, contempt of Congress can be punished as a criminal offense. It carries a possible sentence of up to 12 months in jail. No president has ever dared during an impeachment inquiry to officially and explicitly order government witnesses to defy House subpoenas. You don't have to consider high-minded constitutional principles to understand why this was wrong. It's simple, really. By ordering specific government officials to defy congressional subpoenas, President Trump forced those officials to choose between submitting to the demands of their boss or break the law. Nobody should abuse a position of power in that way. But President Trump specifically ordered all three of these senior White House officials, Mulvaney, Blair, Eisenberg, to defy the House's subpoenas and refuse to testify. President Trump's efforts to conceal his actions didn't stop there, and they didn't stop at the front door of the White House. No less than 12 other witnesses were specifically ordered not to testify. One of those witnesses, Ulrich Breckbull, hasn't been highlighted much over the past few days, but the way he fits into the story is worth noting. President Trump pre prevented at least 12 current or former administration officials from testifying during the House's impeachment inquiry. He specifically forced nine of those witnesses to defy duly authorized subpoenas. The facts are straightforward and they're not in dispute. First, in the history of our republic, no president ever dared to issue an order to prevent even a single government witness from testifying in an impeachment inquiry. Second, President Trump abused the power of his office by using his official power in an attempt to prevent every single person who works in the executive branch from testifying before the House. Finally, President Trump's orders, in fact, prevented the House from obtaining key witness testimony from at least 12 current or former government officials. President Trump's orders were clear. They were categorical, they were indiscriminate, and they were wrong. They prevented key government witnesses from testifying. There's no doubt. That's obstruction, plain and simple. Here's Representative Demings again. Now let us turn to some final set of facts. In a further effort to silence his administration, President Trump engaged in a brazen effort 
to publicly attack and intimidate the dedicated public servants who came forward to testify. To be clear, these witnesses didn't seek the spotlight in this way, the president. The president's attacks were broadcast to millions of Americans, including the witnesses, their families, their friends, and their co-workers. This campaign of intimidation risked discouraging witnesses from coming forward voluntarily or complying with mandatory subpoenas for documents and testimonies. And as we all know, witness intimidation is a federal crime. There is simply not enough time today to walk through each of the president's attacks on the House's witnesses. But let's talk about a few. As I am sure my colleagues recall, the House subpoenaed Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch for public testimony. Ambassador Yovanovitch's first tour was in Somalia, an increasingly dangerous place as that country's civil war progressed. During a different tour, when Ambassador Yovanovitch helped to open a U.S. embassy, during which time the embassy was attacked by a gunman who sprayed the embassy building with gunfire. Ambassador Yovanovitch has also served as ambassador to Armenia and served the U.S. embassy in Moscow. As Chairman Schiff said earlier, she has served in some dangerous places around the world on behalf of our interest and the interests of the American people. President Trump's Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs described Ambassador Yovanovitch as, and I quote, an exceptional officer during exceptional work at a critical embassy in Kiev. But during Ambassador Yovanovitch's public testimony, President Trump tweeted, Everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Then fast forward to Ukraine, where the new Ukrainian president spoke unfavorably about her in my second phone call with him. It is the U.S. president's outright or absolute right to appoint ambassadors. In that same hearing, Chairman Schiff asked Ambassador Yovanovitch for her reactions to the president's attacks during her testimony before the House. Let's listen to that exchange. Ambassador, um, you've shown the courage to come forward today and testify. Notwithstanding the fact you were urged by the White House or State Department not to, Notwithstanding the fact that, as you testified earlier, the president implicitly threatened you in that call record, and now the president in real time is attacking you, what effect do you think that has on other witnesses' willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. It's designed to intimidate, is it not? 
I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Well, I want to let you know, Ambassador, that some of us here take witness intimidation very, very seriously. In addition to his relentless attack on witnesses who testified in connection to the House's impeachment inquiry, the President also repeatedly threatened and attacked the member of the intelligence community who filed the anonymous whistleblower complaint. In more than 100 statements about the whistleblower over a period of just two months, the President publicly questioned the whistleblower's motives and disputed the accuracy of the whistleblower's account. But most disturbing, President Trump issued a threat against the whistleblower and those who provided information to the whistleblower. Let's listen. I want to know who's the person that gave the whistleblower, who's the person that gave the whistleblower the information? Because that's close to a spy. You know what we used to do in the old days when we were smart, right? With spies and treason, right? We used to handle it a little differently than we do now. The baton was then passed from House Manager Gerald Nadler to Zoe Lofgren, who described the history and law of impeachment investigations, making the case that President Trump's actions are unprecedented, obstructive, and threaten the separation of powers. Now that we have carefully reviewed the facts and have described the President's categorical obstruction of Congress, we address questions of law. This discussion need not be abstract. The President's obstruction impacts the Senate directly. It impacts the constituents you represent. It impacts you. Because your job as a member of Congress is to hold the executive branch in check. This is true no matter who occupies the White House or which party controls the House or Senate. And the further the President, any President, departs from the law and the Constitution, the more important it is for you to do your job. I suspect that there is common ground here. We all know that in order for Congress to do its work, we must have information. What is reasonable policy? What is the administration doing? Do we support it? Should we oppose it? Should we enact legislation to correct the problem? Asking questions, gathering information, making decisions based on the answers, this is one of the fundamental functions of Congress. I suspect that we agree on this as well. Our ability to do that work depends on our gathering information. It depends on the power of the congressional subpoena. Even when you make a plight request for information from a friendly administration, that request is backed by the threat of a subpoena. And although the power of the congressional subpoena has been affirmed repeatedly by the courts, enshrined in the rules of the House and Senate, and respected by executive branch agencies for centuries, if the President chooses to ignore our subpoenas, our power as a branch of government, our ability to do our jobs, our ability to keep an administration in check, our ability to make sure that the American people are represented by a Congress and not just by a president is diminished. Please know that we are not talking about a disagreement over the last few documents 
at the end of a long production schedule. We are talking about a direct order from the President of the United States to completely disregard all our subpoenas, to deny us all information the President wants to keep secret. This is in order to deprive Congress of our ability to hold an administration accountable. It is a bid to neuter Congress, to render the President all-powerful. Whatever the limits of legislative power in other contexts, and whatever need may otherwise exist for preserving the confidentiality of presidential conversations, in the context of an impeachment, proceeding the balance was struck in the favor of the power of inquiry. Accordingly, President Trump's conduct is unprecedented and actually offensive to the presidents, and it is inconsistent with his duty, his oath, to faithfully execute the laws. Now, that obligation to see that the laws are faithfully executed is not just about enforcing statutes. It's a duty to be faithful to the Constitution, every part of it, as stated in the text and understood across history, and it is a duty he has violated by obstructing Congress here. I want to make one additional point regarding the judiciary. Now, parents, uh, presidents have an obligation to comply with the Congress's uh, impeachment inquiry, regardless of whether a court has reviewed the request. We make this point even though, I think, President Trump's lawyers would be making a mistake to raise it. After all, the president's lawyers can't have it both ways. They can't argue here that we must go to court and then argue in court that our case can't be heard. Anyway, the House's sole power of impeachment wouldn't be sole or much of a power if the House could not investigate the president at all without spending years litigating before, before the third branch of government. It would frustrate the Constitution for the House to depend entirely on the judiciary to advance its impeachment-related investigatory powers. Consistent with this understanding, before President Trump, the House had never before filed a lawsuit to require testimony or documents in a presidential impeachment. We didn't have to. No president ever issued a blanket ban on compliance with House subpoenas or challenged the House to find a way around his unlawful order. In this strange and unprecedented situation, it's appropriate for Congress to reach its own judgment that the president is obstructing the exercise of its constitutional power. As then, Representative Lindsey Graham explained in 1998 during the Clinton proceedings where we served together on the Judiciary Committee, quote, the day Richard Nixon failed to answer that subpoena is the day he was subject to impeachment because he took the power from Congress over the impeachment process away from Congress and he became the judge and jury. There's still another reason why it would be wrong and dangerous to insist that the House cannot take action without involving the courts, and that reason is delay. Consider just three lawsuits filed by House committees 
over the past two decades to enforce subpoenas against senior executive branch officials. Now, I served on the Judiciary Committee when we decided that we needed to hear from former White House counsel Harriet Myers. In Committee on the Judiciary versus Myers, the Judiciary Committee tried to enforce a subpoena that required her to give testimony about the contentious firing of nine U.S. attorneys. The committee served the subpoena in 2007. We negotiated, as courts indicate you should, with the White House, and we finally filed suit in March of 2008. We won a favorable district court order in July 2008. But we didn't receive testimony from Myers until June of 2009. That was two years. In Committee on Oversight and Reform versus Holder, the Committee on Oversight and Reform tried to force Attorney General Eric Holder to produce additional documents relating to the so-called Operation Fast and Furious. The committee served the subpoena on October 2011. They filed suit August 2012. They want a series of orders requiring productions of documents, but the first such order did not issue until August of 2014, nearly three years. In Committee on the Judiciary versus McGahn, the House Judiciary Committee sought to enforce a subpoena to require White House counsel Don McGahn to give testimony regarding matters relating to the special counsel's investigation. Now, we served that subpoena in April of last year. We filed suit in August of last year. We won a favorable district court order in November of last year. The Court of Appeals has stayed that ruling and didn't hear arguments until early this month with an opinion and potentially, unlikely, Supreme Court application likely to follow. We will not have an answer likely this year. Sometimes courts move quickly, but here they haven't. Not at all. Even when the House urges expedited action, it usually takes years, not months, to get evidence through judicial proceedings. Now, the president can't put off impeachment for years by ordering total defiance of the House and then insist the court go to court even as he argues that they can't go to court. That's especially true where the president just doesn't just raise one or two objections to specific subpoenas, but orders a blanket government-wide cover-up of all evidence. That kind of order makes this clear. The president sees himself completely immune from any accountability above the law. It reveals his pretensions, really, to absolute power. House Manager Hakeem Jeffries then engaged directly with President Trump's arguments that he did not have a legal obligation to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. President Trump's defense appears to be, I can do whatever I want to do. Only I can fix it. I am the chosen one. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. Nobody knows the system better than me. (laughs) 
which is why I alone can fix it. Somebody had to do it. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. Is that who we are as a democracy? President Trump can't address the substance of our case. He therefore complains about process. But these procedural complaints are baseless excuses, and they do not justify his attempts to hide the truth from Congress and from the American people. The President's arguments fail for four simple reasons. First, the House, not the President, has the sole power of impeachment and the sole power to determine the rules of its proceedings. That's Article I, Section 2 of the Constitution. Second, President Trump's due process argument has no basis in law, no basis in fact, no basis in the Constitution. President Trump may not preemptively deny any and all cooperation to the House and then assert that the House's procedures are illegitimate because they lack his cooperation. Third, President Trump's claim that he is being treated differently completely lacks merit. Despite what he contends, the House provided President Trump with greater protection than what was given to both President Nixon and President Clinton. The fact that President Trump failed to take advantage of these procedural protections does not mean they did not exist. President Trump is not the first president to complain about House procedures. He won't be the last. He's not the first one to challenge the motives of any investigation or certainly an impeachment inquiry. Such complaints are standard operating procedure from the Article II executive branch. President Johnson, President Nixon, President Clinton had plenty of complaints. But no president, no president, no president has treated such objections as a basis for withholding evidence, let alone categorically defying every single subpoena. None except Donald John Trump. And if a president can defy Congress on such fragile grounds, then it is difficult to imagine why any future president would ever comply with an impeachment or investigative subpoena again. Now, throughout our history, impeachments have been rare, and the Supreme Court has made clear that it's wary of intruding on matters of impeachment. This, of course, leaves room for inter-branch negotiation. But it does not allow the president to engage in blanket defiance. President Trump's objections are not genuinely rooted in the law. They are not good faith legal arguments. We know that because President Trump said early on he would fight all subpoenas. Let's now address the president's so-called due process and fairness arguments. 
president has phrased some of his complaints in the language of due process. He has complained that the procedures were not fair, even though they reflect prior practice and strike a reasonable balance between presidential involvement on the one hand and the House's obligation to find the truth on the other. Presidents come and presidents go. They have all sharply criticized House procedures, but no president has ever treated those objections as a basis for complete defiance. No president has ever done that. In the context of a House impeachment inquiry, it's fair to say that a president is a suspect, a suspect who may have committed a high crime or misdemeanor. He cannot tell the detectives investigating the possible constitutional crime what they should do in the context of their investigation. In the president's October 8th letter, Mr. Cipollone complains that he was denied the most basic protections demanded by due process under the Constitution and by fundamental fairness, including the right to cross-examine witnesses, to call witnesses, to receive transcripts of testimony, to have access to evidence, and to have counsel president present. It sounds terrible, but it's not accurate. The president appears to have mistaken the initial phases of the impeachment inquiry for a full-blown trial. The trial phase of the impeachment inquiry is taking place right now. Chairman Peter Rodino of the Judiciary Committee once observed, as it relates to the impeachment proceedings against President Nixon, it is not a right, but a privilege or a courtesy for the president to participate through counsel. An impeachment inquiry is not a trial. Rather, it entails a collection and evaluation of facts before the trial occurs. In that respect, the House acts like a grand jury or a prosecutor investigating the evidence to determine whether charges are warranted or not. Federal grand juries and prosecutors do not allow targets of their investigation to coordinate witness testimony. The protections that the president label as due process, label as due process, do not apply here. Because those entitlements that he sought, many of which were actually afforded to him, but those entitlements that he sought would not necessarily be available to any American. After a dinner break, House Manager Jason Crow further explored the president's legal theories about his immunity from investigation. Our founders created a system in which all people, even presidents, are bound by the law and accountable for their actions. In addition to claiming that he is immune from criminal process, President Trump contends that he is not accountable to either Congress or the judiciary. 
He has invoked bizarre legal theories to justify defying congressional investigations. He has argued that Congress is forbidden from having the courts intervene with executive branch officials disregarding its subpoenas. He has sued to block third parties from complying with congressional subpoenas. And perhaps most remarkably, President Trump has claimed that Congress cannot investigate his misconduct outside of an impeachment inquiry while simultaneously claiming that Congress cannot investigate his misconduct in an impeachment inquiry. Of course, President Trump considers any inquiry to be illegitimate if he thinks he did nothing wrong, doubts the motives of Congress, or decides that he would prefer a different set of rules. Let's review the President's position. He can't be investigated for crimes. He can end any federal law enforcement investigation into him. He is immune from any state law enforcement investigation. Neither he nor his aides can be subpoenaed. He can reject subpoenas based on broad, novel, and even rejected theories. And when he does reject subpoenas, Congress is not allowed to sue him. But he is allowed to sue to block others from complying with congressional subpoenas. Congress definitely can't investigate him outside of an impeachment inquiry. And again, it can't investigate him as part of one. The bottom line is that the president truly believes that he is above the law. This is not our system, and it never has been. The president is a constitutional officer. Unlike a king, he is accountable to the Constitution. But this president doesn't believe that, and that's why we are here. Remember the precedent that you set in this trial will shape American democracy for the future. It will govern this president, and it will govern those who follow. If you let the president get away with his obstruction, you risk grave and irreparable harm to the separation of powers itself. This leads us to a second consideration, the president's pattern of obstructing. Article 2 describes President Trump's impeachable conduct in obstructing Congress. On its own, that warrants removal from office. Yet it must be noted that the president's obstruction fits a disturbing pattern. As stated in Article 2, President Trump's obstruction is, quote, consistent with his previous efforts to undermine United States government investigations into foreign interference in United States elections. Another example is President Trump's attempts to impede the special counsel's investigation into Russian interference with the 2016 election, as well as the president's sustained efforts to obstruct the special counsel after learning that he was under investigation for obstruction of justice. The special counsel's investigation addressed an issue of extraordinary importance to our national security and democracy, the integrity of our elections themselves. Rather than aid the special counsel's investigation, however, President Trump sought to thwart it and use the powers of his office to do it. After learning that he himself was under investigation, President Trump ordered the firing of the special counsel, sought to curtail the special counsel's investigation, instructed the White House counsel to create a false record and make false public statements, and tampered with at least two key witnesses 
in the investigation. The pattern is as unmistakable as it is unnerving. In one moment, President Trump welcomed and invited a foreign nation to interfere in an election to his advantage. In the next, he solicited and pressured a foreign nation to do so. In one moment, President Trump used the powers of his office to obstruct the special counsel. In the next, he used the powers of his office to obstruct the House impeachment inquiry. House Manager Schiff then rose to conclude the House's presentation for the impeachment and removal of the president. President Trump abused the powers of his high office through the following means. Number one, directing the White House to defy a lawful subpoena by withholding the production of documents sought therein by the committees. That has been proved. Directing other executive branch agencies and offices to defy lawful subpoenas and withhold the production of documents and records from the committees in response to which the Department of State, the Office of Management Budget, Department of Energy, and Department of Defense refused to produce a single record or document that has been proved. Directing current and former executive branch officials not to cooperate with the committees in response to which nine administration officials defied subpoenas for testimony, namely John Michael Mick Mulvaney, Robert B. Blair, John A. Eisenberg, Michael Ellis, Preston Wells Griffith, Russell T. Vaught, Michael Duffy, Brian McCormick, and T. Ulrich Breckbill. That has been proved. These actions were consistent with President Trump's previous efforts to undermine United States government investigations into foreign interference in U.S. elections. That has been proved. Through these actions, President Trump sought to arrogate to himself the right to determine the propriety, scope, and nature of an impeachment inquiry into his own conduct, as well as the unilateral prerogative to deny any and all information to the House of Representatives in the exercise of its sole power of impeachment that has been proved. In the history of the Republic, no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. That has been proved. The abuse of office served to cover up the president's own repeated misconduct and to seize and control the power of impeachment and thus to nullify a vital safeguard vested solely in the House of Representatives. That has been proved. In all of this, President Trump has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and subversive of constitutional government to the great prejudice of the cause of law and justice and to the manifest manifest injury of the people of the United States. That has been proved. Whereas, or wherefore, President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-government and the rule of law. That has been proved. President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, that will be for you to determine. Let me say something about this second article. 
The facts of the President's defiance of Congress are very simple because they were so uniform, because they were so categorical, because they are so uncontested. But do not mistake for a moment the fact that it was simple and, it, and quick to present that course of conduct compared with a sophisticated campaign to coerce Ukraine into thinking that that second article is any less significant than the first. Do not believe that for a moment. If there is no Article 2, let me tell you something. There will never be an Article 1. If there's no Article 2, there will never, of any kind or shape or form, be an Article 1. And why is that? Because if you and we lack the power to investigate a president, there will never be an Article 1. Whether that Article 1 is abuse of power, or that Article 1 is treason, or that Article 1 is bribery. There will never be an Article 1 if the Congress can't investigate an impeachable offense. If the Congress cannot, because the President prevents it, investigate the President's own wrongdoing, there will never be an Article 1. Because there will be no more impeachment power. It will be gone. It will be gone. You give this president or any other the unilateral power to delay as long as he or she likes to litigate matters for years and years in the courts and do not fool yourself into thinking it is anything less. In April, it will be a year since we subpoenaed Don McGahn and there is no sign of an end to that case. And I'll tell you, when it gets to the Supreme Court, you might think that's the end, and that's just the end of the first chapter. It is fundamental to the separation of powers. If you can't have the ability to enforce an impeachment power, you might as well not put it in the Constitution. Now, shortly, the President's lawyers will have a chance to make their presentation. And as we will not have the ability to respond to what they say, I want to give you a little preview of what I think they're going to have in store for you. So that when you do hear it, you can put it into some perspective. So here's what I expect that they will tell you. The process was so unfair. It was the most unfair in the history of the world. Because in the House, they took Depositions. Now, of course, as you know, the Constitution says the House will have the sole power of impeachment. If we want to do it by House resolution, we can do it by House resolution. If we want to do it by committee, we can do it by committee. It is not the President's place to tell us how to conduct an impeachment proceeding any more than it is the President's place to tell you how you should try it. Now, you'll also hear, I think, the second thing you'll hear from the President's team is attack the managers. Those managers are just awful. They're terrible people, especially that shift guy. He's the worst. Whatever you do, just don't 
consider the president's misconduct. You'll also hear tax on the Constitution. Of course, it won't be framed as an attack on the Constitution, but that's really what it represents. And that is, abuse of power doesn't violate the Constitution. Presidents of the United States have every right to abuse their power. That's the argument. Okay, I know it's a hard argument to make, right? Presidents have a constitutional right to abuse their power. And how dare the House of Representatives charge a president with abusing his power? Now, I'm looking forward to that constitutional argument by Alan Dershowitz. Because I want to know why abusing power and trust is not impeachable now, but it was a few years ago. Because the last time I checked, I don't think there was a significant change to the Constitution between the time he said it was impeachable and the time he's saying now that apparently it is not impeachable. So I'm looking forward to that argument. You may hear the argument that what the president is doing when he is obstructing Congress is protecting the office for future presidents. Because there is nothing more important to Donald Trump than protecting the office of the presidency for future presidents. And I suppose when he withheld military aid from Ukraine, he was trying to protect future presidents. And when he sought to coerce a foreign power to intervene in our election, he was doing it on behalf of future presidents, because future presidents might likewise wish to cheat in a further election. I don't think that argument goes very far. But I expect you'll hear it. I expect you'll hear it. You may hear an argument that the president was really concerned about corruption, and he was concerned about burden sharing. I won't spend much time on that because you've heard the evidence on that. So what do all these defenses mean? What do they mean? What do they mean collectively when you add them all up? What they mean is, under Article 2, the president can do whatever he wants. That's really it. You know, that's really it, stripped of all the detail and all the histrionics. What they want us to believe is the president can do whatever he wants under Article 2, and there is nothing that you or the House can do about it. One of the things that we in this fellowship of office holders understand that most people don't is that real political courage doesn't come from disagreeing with our opponents, but from disagreeing with our friends and with our own party. Because it means having to stare down accusations of disloyalty and betrayal. He's a Democrat in name only, or she's a Republican in name only. What I said last night, if it resonated with anyone in this chamber, didn't require courage. My views, as heartfelt as they are, reflect the views of my constituents. But what happens when our heartfelt views of right and wrong are in conflict with the popular opinion of our constituents? 
Now, the president's lawyers have been making their case outside of this chamber, threatening to stall these proceedings with the assertion of false claims of privilege. Having persuaded this body to postpone consideration of the witnesses and documents, they now appear to be preparing the ground to say it will be too late to consider them next week. But consider this. Of the hundreds of documents that we have subpoenaed, there is no colorable claim and none has been asserted. To the degree that you could even make a claim, that claim has been waived. To the degree that even superficially a claim would attach, it does not conceal misconduct. And what's more, to the degree that there were a dispute over whether a privilege applied, we have a perfectly good judge sitting behind me. So let us not be fooled by the argument that it will take too long or persuaded that the trial must be over before the State of the Union. This is no parking ticket we are contesting, no shoplifting case we are prosecuting. It is a matter of high crimes and misdemeanors. How long is too long to have a fair trial, fair to the President and fair to the American people? The American people do not agree on much, but they will not forgive being deprived of the truth is it too much fatigue to call witnesses and have a fair trial? Are the blessings of freedom so meager that we will not endure the fatigue of a real trial with witnesses and documents? President Lincoln, in his closing message to Congress in December 1862, said this, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. I think he was the most interesting president in history. He may be the most interesting person in our history. This man who started out dirt poor. Dirt poor, like hundreds of thousands of other people at the time. He had nothing. No money, no education. He educated himself. Educated himself, but he had a brain in that head, a brilliance in that mind, that made him one of the most incredible, not just presidents, but people in history. I think he's the most interesting character in our history. Out of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of other Americans at the time, why him? Why him? I think a lot about history, as I know you do. Sometimes I think about how unforgiving history can be of our conduct. We can do a lifetime's work, draft the most wonderful legislation, help our constituents, and yet we may be remembered for none of that. But for a single decision, we may be remembered, affecting the course of our country. I believe this may be one of those moments. 
a moment we never thought we would see, a moment when our democracy was gravely threatened, and not from without, but from within. Russia, too, has a constitution. It's not a bad constitution. It's just a meaningless one. In Russia, they have trial by telephone. They have the same ostensible rights we do to a trial. They hear evidence and witnesses. But before the verdict is rendered, the judge picks up the telephone and calls the right person to find out how it's supposed to turn out. Trial by telephone. Is that what we have here, trial by telephone? Someone on the other end of the phone dictating what this trial should look like? The founders gave us more than words. They gave us inspiration. They may have receded into mythology, but they inspire us still. And more than us, they inspire the rest of the world. They inspire the rest of the world from their prison cells in Turkey. Journalists look to us. From their internment camps in China, they look to us. From their cells in Egypt, those who gathered in Tahrir Square for a better life look to us. From the Philippines, those that were the victims and their families of mass extrajudicial killing, they look to us. From Elgin Prison, they look to us. From all over the world, they look to us. And increasingly, they don't recognize what they see. It's a terrible tragedy for them. It is a worse tragedy for us. Because there's nowhere else for them to turn. They're not going to turn to Russia. They're not going to turn to China. They're not going to turn to Europe with all of its problems. They look to us because we are still the indispensable nation. They look to us because we have a rule of law. They look to us because no one is above that law. And one of the things that separates us from those people in Elgin prison is the right to a trial. It's a right to a trial. Americans get a fair trial. And so I ask you, I implore you, give America a fair trial. Give America a fair trial. She's worth it. Thank you. Sent the trial adjourned until 10 a.m. Saturday, January 25th, and this order also constitute the adjournment of the Senate. Without objection, so ordered, the Senate is adjourned. The Senate adjourned until 10 a.m. on Saturday. We'll be back tomorrow, where the President's counsel will make their case against impeachment of the President. Thank you for listening. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adolsky, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, 
Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.